I'm kind of picturing kind of you know pig stealing from a tiger, like, like armed robbery, <laughs> a gang of rhinos. Hello and welcome again to the Mental Cinches podcast. I'm still Matt, and I'm still Lawrence. Bethan is also here. Bethan, why are you here? Well, today Matt and Lawrence are going to interview me about the thing that I do outside of the podcast. So, guys, take it away. Bethan, what do you do outside the podcast? <laughs> so. Um, beyond being a PhD student and a fabulous podcast presenter, um, I also founded my own startup two years ago called Bento Bio. We are building portable, affordable DNA analysis equipment. Yeah, I remember the first time we met Bethan, and this is the story everyone has about Bethan. It was it was when we just started this PhD course, and everyone was sitting around, satting around, and then Bethan comes in, box in hand, announces her five year plan. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Passes us all a spreadsheet of how it's budgeted. Clutching it tight like Paddington Bear in a jar of marmalade. <laughs> Hat and all. Okay, so what is it? You're building, essentially, a tiny portable laboratory, right? It's got a little... Go on, what's, what's it got? So it's got a PCR machine, a centrifuge, and a gelectrophoresis unit with a blue LED transilluminator. So you could go from extracting a sample of tissue say um, your saliva or hair of your cat, um, anything that contains DNA, you can extract the DNA from it and then you can go through to identifying a gene, uh, copying it up and then visualising it. So what's the difference between this and a service like 23andMe? That's a really good question. So 23andMe do all of the analysis for you. With Bento Lab, you've got to do the analysis yourself. Also, there's a really big distinction between 23andMe, which is a sequencing service, and Bentelab, which doesn't have sequencing abilities right now, Bentelab has a gelectrophoresis which allows you to do very simple genetic analysis. So you can either identify like the difference between two gene sizes and you can set your markers up so that you can visually see the difference. Um, or what you can do is copy the same gene, but if there's a mutation, you can cut it open with a restriction enzyme. So the visual output that you get will be different based on that point mutation. One of the feed pieces of feedback that we've had from users so far is they're interested in Bentilab because it's a step towards being able to do 23andMe style analysis at home, but it doesn't give away your privacy. You're not sending your data to anyone. Is 23andMe like Ubiome? Because you've spoken a lot about Ubiome before. No, well, Ubiome, I mean, similar, but Ubiome is focusing on the bacteria in your gut and on your skin. So there, that's, I mean, the interesting thing about Ubiome is they're focusing on data that can be changed based on your environment, on your diet. Your genetics with 23andMe, that can't be changed. If you get insurance based on your genetics, that's permanent and you're set for life. Okay, okay, let's go back to the purpose of what we're doing. You mentioned that you could take pretty much any tissue and analyse it through the systems in Bento. Uh, There are some regulations, I understand, with looking at human tissue. Can you can you take just skin cells and add them to bento without having any um, any government suits chasing you down? I guess for us, what's important is to emphasise that the purpose of bento lab is to be educational. We're not trying to help people conduct paternity tests. We're trying to help people understand how paternity tests are conducted, and to raise awareness around that type of jargon and kind of like the idea of bioliteracy. So that to raise awareness around how paternity tests, for example, are done so that you also understand the probabilities behind it and that potentially that data isn't the only data available. I think that one of the issues that people have with um, 
medical care sometimes is that they expect results to be black and white and when as you become a biologist you increasingly understand that there's huge scales of, of grey applied to what we understand and even to what the actual setup is if people that's going to be a difficult thing to make clear but when 23andMe tell you you have a 30% chance of getting of increased Alzheimer's that's based on research which itself has an inherent probability um, and I think that it's not until you actually start to get hands-on and you understand things like well my experiment hasn't worked. Why hasn't it worked? There's 10 possible different reasons. I'm seeing five different things here. Why is that the case? And you actually start to break down the questions and understand the complexity that you... And that's, I mean, I guess that's also not what people want. In some ways, what people want with Bento sometimes is for us to give them a little kit where they can essentially do 23andMe at home. They can analyse their entire genome and they can type in how much percentage of fox am I, that type of thing. So they kind of want a magic do science I, Do I have BRCA1? <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I'm not going to lie. I'm interested in testing myself for BRCA1. I know that if I do, the results might not be reliable, but I think that I think that the idea of five, ten years down the line, you being able to do genetic testing at home and then going f to verify those results or even having, like people wear Fitbits, having an increased level of understanding around your environment and your own health on a constant basis could be really interesting. So I love the idea of citizen science where it's really hands-on. I mean, for a long time, citizen science has been held back by um, accessibility money, for instance, is a, is a huge uh, burden for people. And that's why citizen science is really um, within the realms of astronomy, where you just need a telescope or some friends that have a telescope or binoculars mm. if you're a birder or something. Um, mm. But the fact that you can actually do that and perhaps engage with people that, you know, might not have a biochemistry background or molecular biology background is really exciting. Mm. I guess I think one of the things that I find so challenging sometimes with Bento Lab and the aspect of citizen science is that people are hoping for something that will cost in the region of £20. And our interest is really in the molecular genetics and the equipment and the reagents, particularly the reagents for that, are still in the regions of tens to hundreds to thousands of pounds. Is the reagents something that you think you might end up helping supply or directly supply? Definitely. So... One of the things that I've been investigating as kind of the biologist on the team is how do we build some very simple starter experiment kits that people can do at home. There are some that are obviously already offered, particularly by kind of educational companies. Um, but it's looking at, OK, then I just don't think that some of them are particularly nicely presented. Um, and it's looking at making them, well, this is not an educational tool per se this is something that you can do because it's fun and it's empowering um, and I've been looking at reducing the number of steps involved so rather than having to get 10 different ingredients you have a little ball for PCR that you drop at the bottom of your tube and then you have like a master mix, like a master kind of mix. Idea. yeah freeze-dried yeah. master mix and then you add water and DNA and you're set to go and the great thing about that is that that actually reduces the number of um, steps of of error that can be introduced into your experiment and it starts to make your data a little bit more reliable. Is it battery powered? Is it? Is it what mains? Is yes. it plugged into the mains? Yeah. yeah. Um, I guess well, you'd always have mains if you're in a lab. I don't know. 
Well, no, you. Um, I mean, people are plugging it into their Land Rovers. So it's while it's not battery powered now, we want it to be battery powered in the future. We've got one of our beta testers in New Zealand, um, and he plugs it into his car, which I like to think is a Land Rover. Um, when he goes on, <laughs> when he goes on field research. So this is something I want to point out because it's not just people in their homes or people sitting in like biohacker labs. It's it's also I. You want to get people in the field using these kind of things, so to diagnose if I, where they can't get to a lab normally. If I'm going to be, I mean, to be totally honest, right now, ninety percent of the users um, are are researchers that are field scientists because they understand how the technology works, and for them, well, firstly, they have a budget which isn't their own disposable income, and secondly, the comparison of price is extreme so they'd normally buy a pcr machine that's maybe ten thousand pounds to pay 700 for a complete lab is you know it's a drop in the a drop in the lake in the pond does it have comparable functionality would you say yes i think so i was speaking to a researcher last week about it and he said that um often in our lab you'll have super fancy equipment and you'll go along and you'll see that actually a person's only using one PCR tube in this like 96 well extreme gradient PCR machine costing 20 grand. So simplicity is actually kind of useful. Yeah, so I suppose one thing that you can't do with the, the, the Bento Lab box is run 15 different experiments at the same time because it's all stuck in the same place you can probably only do a focus things but that that's not necessarily a bad thing i mean if you're in the in the if you're in the field yeah you're probably not going to be doing hundreds and hundreds of things in the first place and i think yeah exactly i think if you're doing hundreds and hundreds of things then you actually want to have a lab that's set up for high throughput potentially with robots so that's this is really not for those type of people i mean we've got we've had some let me pull up the um <laughs> We've done a survey this the last two weeks of like 500 people. So I've got a list, a huge list of all the things that people want to do with it. So the people that um, we spoke to, um, we asked them who they'd see using Bentolab and who they were. So we had everything from um, kind of DIY biologists, which you, I guess you expect, field researchers that are pathologists, ecologists, environmental, molecular biologists... Um, amateurs that range from like brewers to chefs to coffee roasters to mycologists that work with um, like foraging mushrooms, uh, teachers, hospitals, clinical labs, life hackers, farmers. I mean, and we even had like a few alternative health practitioners, although I was kind of tempted to say, no, you cannot have a Benton lab because I do not agree with that. <laughs> um Maybe it'll expose them to um, to actual biology, perhaps. Potentially, yeah, yeah and then they'll yeah. improve. <laughs> what was the specific things that they were wanting to use it for? Yeah, so sorry, that was my that was like my list of all these kind of people want to work with it. Um, so I have I have direct quotes, which is great. Um, I have people that say that they want to um, teach hands-on science for kids from primary to high school. I would their, I would have loved that. All their that children. Um, we also have things like I would do fungal barcoding. Um, I would find out about my own DNA and create art. Uh, I'm a final year student and I would take it home to do some work there and then show my non-scientist friends what I work on. Um, people that want to test things to check purity, like is this GM or like um, 
what kind of common household DNA is there? Or I actually... <laughs> I so things like checking... For, could you check for horse meat in Iceland uh, pies? Yes, Iceland? definitely. Actually, that's one of the ex- one of the easiest experiments that you can do with Ventilab because we've already set up. We've got a kit to do that. Can you run us through the basics of that, of how that experiment will work out? So you're standing there with a hamburger of meat. Um, first, you'd want to extract the DNA. So you can do that with a couple of different methods. Either you can kind of do the... Um, you can use household ingredients like salt... Um, soap and a very high percentage of alcohol and that helps you break open the cells um, get rid of all the stuff that isn't DNA uh, and and precipitate which means to kind of like form solids out of your DNA so that you have a solid chunk of DNA Um, then you'd move it over to the PCR machine and you'd have specific markers that are looking for a gene Um, so you're going to have some that are designed to detect horse um, and then whatever other species you've chosen to put in there. So in the in the sample of primers that I've got, I've got markers that look for horse, goat, cow, pork, pig, um, and I think chicken. So I can tell if something is one of those five animals. Um, if it's not one of those five animals, then it probably just won't show up. And this is a kind of a, a, a binary thing. It's 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 you get a mark there or you don't. It's not yeah. giving you a percentage back, right? Well okay. it gives you a percentage back in the sense that so you But you, it's vague. It's it's very yeah, it's very vague. So like you copy you copy this DNA using the markers until you have enough that you can actually visually see it. And then you you look at it by um mixing it up with a dye that means that when you pass through blue light through it you can see the DNA um, and so you can tell concentrations by like the intensity of the DNA that you can see like if it's very faint then you've only got a little bit if it's quite intense then you've got a significant amount um, so there's a chance like I mean when you're doing gelectrophoresis that's not really the type of equipment that you'd use to detect a 0.01% contamination um because you won't be able to see that kind of tiny amount, even if it was there. Yeah. It'd be really faint, I mean, I, guess. I don't, I can't remember exactly what percentage, and I think that would vary massively on what test you were conducting. But it's, it's a safe, uh, safe, uh, a more logical thing to say that it would be difficult to detect smaller, detect smaller amounts of contamination. Obviously, the idea of um, small transportable kit is uh, becoming more and more in vogue. Probably the most classic example of this is with sequencing technologies at the moment where you have things like the nanopore, where mm. you've got a tiny, tiny USB-sized uh, sequencer. Do you see that kind of technology as, as like a competitor to you, to you, or do you see it as working in, in tandem? I guess, I mean, whenever you're working in a similar field, there's always that element of competition because it's easy for someone to expand in a different direction. So the Nanimpore Mini Iron, the USB sequencer, uh, is actually being used by a lot of our beta testers. So they'll go out into the field, they'll extract DNA, and then they'll run it through the Mini Iron to test what's there. Um, and one of the comments that we've had from them is that, so uh, before running it through your sequencer, you might want to check how much DNA you have. And that's something that you can do with the gelectrophoresis. Like I said earlier, depending on the intensity of the the, the DNA that you can see, you can kind of tell whether or not you've got enough DNA that's worth sampling. Um, so that might be something that would be interesting. It depends really on the field scientists you talk to, how rigorous they are. Is it hackable? Can I, so for instance, if I wanted to add a module to it, um, 
or if I wanted to play around with well, or will you make it that kind of thing as well? Will it there be the opportunity to change modules around eventually? Yeah, yeah. What, what, what's the deal with the the open source nature of uh, Bento Bio? So um, we're planning to release the electronics and the um, software all open source within six months. We're coming from the DIY Bio community. Open source is something that's really important for us. On the other hand, it's also important for us that that documentation is like quite rigorous and accessible because you can often see open source projects where it's poorly documented and it's kind of by developers for developers or potentially themselves. Um, and that's not something that we want to replicate. Um, so yeah, it will be hackable. And one of the exciting things about Bento Lab is that it's going to be Wi-Fi enabled because we're moving to a new chip called um, Photon, which has got Wi-Fi. So that means that you could build your own apps for it. Um, and yeah, I think so in terms of, I guess one, one, one thing that I didn't address there was the hardware. Um, and we have got some plans to make, well, we've got plans to make some hardware open source as well. I think what we're, we're still kind of exploring that because for us, a big concern is that um, with Bento Lab, one of the things that we wanted to do was say, okay, well, we're making a piece of equipment that you don't have to build, so it's going to be safety tested and it's going to be something that you can really trust to use. Um, and if we make the designs exactly as they are open source, then we're potentially leaving ourselves open to have versions of the Bento out there that look exactly like it is, but it's not safety tested. So I think what we're thinking or what we're considering doing more is the idea of putting designs out there from a previous model or from a simplified model where someone can build something that's pretty much like the Bento Lab, but it doesn't have the same identity so that people kind of assume that it is like a, the, tr the real thing. Open source is, it's interesting because it's often seen as quite a political thing. Um, and I, and some, sometimes I feel that the the kind of feather felt by people that are really for open source loses sight of the of the purpose of open source which is to make projects to, to create freedom and to empower people and i feel that often freedom can be equated to open source and that's not the case or open source being equated to accessibility and it it's something that comes up a lot for us because it's because we come out of that community that um, cares a lot that is open source um, and also because we have built our projects with a lot of help and support from open source projects so it's important for us to contribute back to that movement and I think I mean we so, so I'm saying it like we're not going to contribute back to the movement we are going to contribute back to the movement it's just that the way that we're going to do it is not going to be oh my god everything is open source and online right now we want to go about it in a way that's more measured um, and making sure that people have the right kind of experience that we we set about doing this project um, because there are loads of great open source projects and we weren't trying to replicate them, we we're trying to do something different. So you say you came out of the Biohackers community, this idea came out of there, can you tell us more about the actual origin of the idea for Ubuntu in that box? Was it something that gradually came along or was it a bit of a eureka running down the street moment? <laughs> um, it was very gradual so um i i guess i mean it, the, the story that we're we're realizing now is that it goes way back so in 2012 philip and i um met it was a hallelujah moment well kind of <laughs> uh we were both long-haired so we worked well together um 
and we were doing iGEM, which is the International Genetic Engineering Competition. Um, we did an episode on that, didn't we? Which we did do an episode on, yeah. So if you're cu- curious about what that is, go and check it out on our Mendel's Finch's Sound Cloud. There you go, great plug. <laughs> um, so as part of that project, we were doing all these biology experiments and we heard about this community biolab out in Hackney in London and we thought, oh my God, great, they can totally like help us um, with all of our bio- biology experiments and we'll have like a an advanced kind of step ahead of all the other teams because, you know, teams, you're competitive when you're an undergrad. Um, and actually we went out to the space and we realised that most of the London biohackers, although this is not true of other spaces, were kind of like computer people (laughs) and when they met us they were like oh my god you can teach us the biology so the roles were a bit reversed um and that led on to a really interesting project exploring what it means to um have open science and kind of um publicly created um genetic uh genes bio bricks um and i think i talked about that quite a bit in the igen project so maybe going back to that might be worthwhile um point being that's how philip and i got involved in kind of diy biology which stands for do-it-yourself biology and kind of citizen science from a biotechnology point of view and one of the biggest challenges that we kept seeing was that a lot of people came to the movement really excited and didn't have something to do or didn't have the equipment to do it and left and we felt that one of the ways to overcome that first challenge was to build kind of like a starter kit for DIY Bio, um, which was a hardware starter kit. And I think we were also definitely very much inspired by um, this fantastic um, group that run workshops, Hacteria Gaudi Labs, and they create like open source hardware um, that you can build yourself. Um, and they built like DNA labs for any environment. But what we wanted to build was something that was... Um, easy to use you can get it and it doesn't you don't have to do the building yourself because um doing electronics is fun but not when you want to be doing biology um and it's kind of the step to doing biology so is it would you say it's plug and play can you literally get out of the box and use it providing you have the reagents and and all the other guff so i carry it around in my backpack with a pipette and some eppendorfs full of stuff and little packets of agarose um, yeah, and you pick people's hair, you know, as you will buy them <laughs> on the street. And then I'm like, oh my god, you're the murderer. No, that's a bad joke. <laughs> um, I do. <laughs> I have actually done used Bento Lab in totally unsuitable environments for doing genetics. For example, at a maker fair in Rome, where I was trying to make the agarose gel to put the DNA in, and I had to like run downstairs to the Italian cafe and be like, give me a hot water and then, you know, like mix it up with agarose and try and make a somewhat soggy gel. But the point is it still kind of works. And I think that's one of the issues with um, the perception of science is that it's meant to be very robust data, which is great. And that's important for scientific accuracy. But it means that the way that people perceive it is that the way that science works is this black and white binary system when actually you can have a science experiment that will work against the odds or you can have a science experiment that works even though you've made a soggyish gel using some Italian tap water um, because biology is impressively resilient. A bit like cooking in a way, isn't it? The <laughs> idea that when you first come to cooking, you think you've got to do it all 
bit by bit by the recipe and then you eventually find out that you can just chuck a load of things in a bowl yeah, and stick it in an oven. exactly. Like, initially you're like, oh my god, I don't have 220 grams of flour. And then you realise, actually, it's like mm. a handful of flour yeah. for like half a handful yeah. of sugar. And the worst thing that happens if you mess up a Yorkshire pudding is you end up with like a sponge cake. So, in the end, you've made something nice anyway. <laughs> Unfortunately, the worst thing that you end up with is if you mess up a biology experiment is nothing. So uh, <laughs> you don't know what. Or grey goo. Grey goo's <laughs> going to come back. This this is true. I mean, I guess. I mean, what's been also very interesting um, is um, people's concerns about safety when it comes to bento lab. Hmm. Um, and I bring that up because that's something that's very important to us as well. And. I think so do, do you mean safety in terms of is the actual machine and the actual experiments safe to do or do you mean the consequences or do or do you mean that what what, what are people going to do with it because theoretically any, any, you know could someone do anything something dangerous with these labs so i mean the last two people are concerned firstly that um people are going to do something dangerous and i think that's the less less con- less of a concern for us um and I can explain why in a second. And then the other concern is that that the reagents themselves are actually dangerous. And that's more of a concern for us because I think that um, realistically there's more of a chance that you'll do yourself harm than you can do other people harm. So, I mean, we're definitely keeping an eye on what kind of projects people are interested in doing. Like 100% of everybody that we've been involved with is on a mission for education. You can never be totally sure that that's what people are doing. Um, but I think that uh, one of the aspects that's really important for us is that if you can encourage education around bio, biology and biotechnology, then it's also easier to recognise what actually is a threat and what is hype or a myth. Um, so for us, in terms of creating um, dangerous things biologically that's not so much of um we think that's relatively low risk although it's obviously worth paying attention to um it's more the matter that somebody because they're not familiar with the biology they might do something silly like think okay this has got fungus on it but that's okay because i'm doing a science experiment and i wouldn't normally eat this but heck it's science let's go for it and then they do something silly and they give themselves you know food poisoning or or worse and i think that's more of a concern but it's also a concern with relatively low risk in terms of how fantastic how much innovation can we reach if everybody is is bioliterate and everyone has an understanding and awareness and access to the kind of tools around biology so people are thinking okay well you know what i swabbed some things in my house and i saw some interesting stuff and actually i'm realizing that maybe the way the fact that i'm using um antibiotic detergents in my house is worse than when i use probiotic detergents because i'm allowing pathogens to to get a better hold in my um you know in my kitchen i mean in in that example do you remember the paper which came out where they swabbed the bits of um the new york underground or something and um, they found that supposedly there was arsenic everywhere. And the general response to that wasn't that they'd actually found an arsenic-producing bacteria somewhere, but instead that they just happened to have a match which was very close. And so do you worry about that idea happening if you've got people in their homes swabbing everything and then finding this kind of false match? I guess I, 
I guess the, there's a possibility that that happens, but then that's mm. also maybe that's the first step towards people understanding better. Because, for example, mm. um, let's take some of the historically um, high impact moments, like when people thought that um, vaccines related to autism. Um, there are, there's a certain level of, um, of misunderstandings that you have to go through to arrive at the truth. Um, so, and that raises, or at least I believe that that raises the general understanding and awareness. So you mean the idea that when, when the Andrew Wakefield came, stuff came about, it got so big and hyped that everyone suddenly came out with their explanations of why this isn't a problem. Like if it, if it gets to a threshold, a certain threshold, you have a, a sudden surge of good education coming out about that topic and you end up with net positive effect. Maybe it's good to use a different one. So t- think about homeopathy. Um, the more the more people the more scare stories that come out about that and you know people kids dying or whatever the more likely you are to have like for example the skeptic community coming out and explaining why homeopathy is nonsense and so you end up with that response overwhelming the initial worry so if we go back to like the home issue you know um, say someone thinks they found anthrax or whatever in their in their home you may find that the overwhelming response to that is instead more education and the idea that you have loads of these really simple explanations of why that isn't true or why there isn't a problem whatever being everywhere because that becomes the new hype story we could go on to the kickstarter so tell us a bit about that um so why kickstarter how's it going what do you aim hope to do with it can we get um lots of bento themed merchandise why kickstarter we wanted to raise awareness of the project this was a project that we've been doing from the start to um, encourage access to these types of tools so although we're conscious that right now it's still relative to the average person's income and an expensive piece of kit and beyond people's knowledge general knowledge we want to share the project and kickstarter is a means of doing that as well as delivering to the couple hundred people that want to purchase the Bento Lab. Um, We're going through redesign at the moment based on our beta testing um, and Kickstarter seemed like the natural way to to share the final version with the people that have been supporting us for the last two and a half years. So I understand you've already got a bunch of kind of um, buyers ready and is this a way of kind of springboarding that first shipment out to everything whilst also being able to make some nice noise at the same time? Yeah. Is that a good way of summarising? Exactly. So I think our first manufacturing run um, is going to be a couple hundred and we've already got a couple hundred people that want one but this is a way of um, sharing the news with other people and and also um, letting people know, uh, letting the people know that that want one but can't necessarily afford one right now but they support the project giving them a way of supporting us um and engaging and giving us feedback i think that for us is definitely a big part of the kickstarter getting feedback on how people see this fitting into the future of um of citizen science at a genetics and biotechnology point of view and of those first 200 people what kind of um areas are they coming from are they researchers are they biohackers or so what do you not know um a lot of them are 
involved in science, the majority of them are already involved in science, either they're science students or they're researchers um, or they're involved in some professional capacity with science. There are a fair amount of people that I think are just interesting. Um, like uh, I have in front of me someone on the survey that's a Jamaican chef and was just interested in what we're doing. Um, and what we're hoping to see over the next couple of years is like an increasing amount of people that don't come from a science background getting involved. Mm. But I think for now, um, the fact that we're able to make it easier for someone that's testing for wildlife crime or someone that is um, teaching science to 14 year olds, if we're able to make that process easier and more representative of what science actually looks like, then that's a win. And long term, we want to be able to make that kind of experience accessible to everyone. What is wildlife crime? Wildlife crime. I'm kind of picturing kind of, you know, pig stealing from a tiger. Like, or something. like armed robbery, <laughs> a gang of rhinos. There's a bunch of pigs wearing human masks or something. No, not even close. <laughs> oh, you guys are so silly. Um, so it is the, um, the idea of poaching endangered species like rhinos um and or like tigers and they kind of say grinding them up or selling their body parts to, for to people that there, there was a market for that you'd identify that as being rhino or something and say uh-huh yeah exactly you'd you. be able to okay. say this is this species and this is the issue with it i mean your wallet is made out of leak like like a what what is it like a monk you can really make a wallet out of a monkfish i'm sorry for interrupting you with that I don't know why a monkfish came into my head. <laughs> I, don't, I don't really know what a monkfish is. <laughs> I always come up with something a monkey, but then I couldn't remember whether a lemur was a... Is a lemur no, a monkey? monkfish are terrifying. A lungfish. A monk... No, monk... Monkfish. monkfish. These, these, this is literally the most disturbing fish I've... Yeah, it's pretty grim, isn't it? This might be a bit of a random thought, but I was at a music concert last night and I was thinking, why is it that music and technology are so important? Often we've compared Bentelab and biotechnology to the computer revolution that happened in the 60s and the 70s where people couldn't imagine why you'd want to have a computer at home and now it's exactly the reason that I'm able to record this podcast with you. Um, and we want to speculate as to what the future looks like in 60 years' time when we all have access to genetic analysis. And so last night at this music concert, I was thinking, why is that so interesting? What about Bentolab to me is so important? And I think it's the fact that it helps you connect to your own biology and the biology of the world around you and understand the environment in which you exist. And that's a bit of a, a vagueish statement, but I think that you're constantly asking that question, who am I? And you ask that in rapport to your friends and to your work, and also to who you are physically, and I think Bentolab is potentially a great way of exploring that. No, I think that's a really nice sentiment. Don't let Matt tell you any different. <laughs> I was going to say that was a nice way of rounding it off, but uh, Lawrence ruined it. So. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. How yeah. do we? So, um, if where do people find you if they want to find you? Um, online. So our website is yeah, online. <laughs> Basically, if you Google Bentolab, you will find us. Don't Google Bentobox because that is a Japanese lunchbox. Um, but our website is bent, www.bento.bio. 
we've got one of those new fancy biology domains um, and mm. we would love to hear from you if you have a question or an idea of how you'd like to interact with DNA so do get in touch I'm actually thinking this is a bit of a side note but I'm actually thinking of filming a series of simple explanations for do-it-yourself biology using the bento lab so for example testing horse meat for uh, testing hamburgers for horse meat and testing your taste receptors from your saliva to see if you can taste bitterness and a girl came up to me at work yesterday and said I found a bone while I was running along the south bank can we see if it's human so I'm gonna see if I can figure out a way to identify if that bone is human and extract DNA from it I'm and tamper with the chain of evidence <laughs> and that, Lawrence, is exactly why we keep eyes on people like you. The Mineral Cinches Podcast is a podcast about science and society produced by University of London PhD researchers. You can find our episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and various other websites. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Middle Cinches for information about upcoming shows. Thanks for listening.